Greetings Race community, Brent coming in live with today's guest, Dexter Bailey Jr., Vice President for Advancement and Alumni Relations at Caltech. Welcome to the Race Podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you, Brent. Well, I have had the opportunity to uh, periodically connect with Dexter for at least a decade or so now. And uh, we were just commenting before we started recording that it has been a while since we saw each other. Probably the last time was at the AGB conference in Florida pre-pandemic. And we think the next time we see each other will likely be at an AGB conference, knock on wood, post-pandemic. Right, right. I actually love those conferences and uh, it, it's always a pleasure to run into people and talk business. Absolutely. And uh, as it relates to the podcast, one of the things that we've been doing with our guests is really trying to better understand your own higher education journey. And so I don't know exactly where you grew up, but I do know that you went to Ohio University, uh, truly one of the most spectacular college campuses that I've uh, been on. And I would love to know a little bit more about Dexter Bailey, junior year of high school. Where was that guy? Who was he? What was he into? And what led him to the uh, home of the Bobcats? Wow. You know, it's really interesting, Brent. You're the first person to ask me to go back that far. (laughs) So so I had to find an original first question here. So that's what I've been going with. Junior year of high school. Here we go. Yeah, that's original. Um, but, but, but actually interesting, I, I think it's, it's, um, it's directional as well. So as a junior in high school, I was very involved in sports and student government. Um, my senior year is actually a president of the, of the class. Um, where, where, where was this? Woodward high, Woodward high school in Toledo, Ohio. Um, okay, I'm going to look I, it I up. Should, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the polar bears. I should say okay. that um, my, you asked me where I'm from. My, my parents are Jamaican immigrants. Uh, so we immigrated uh, from Jamaica to Toledo um, in 1978, uh, just in time for the blizzard, which was quite amazing uh, coming from uh, tropical, the Caribbean, and then, you know, having my first uh, winter being the great winter of 78. How old were you when you immigrated? Uh, I was eight years old. Eight years and old. And so you, you remember it well. Did you have siblings? Uh, absolutely. Uh, so I have an older sister, five years, and then a younger sister, five years younger. Yeah, so. And was there a Jamaican community in Toledo or what was the catalyst to end up there? Yeah, well, the catalyst had a lot to do with uh, probably the person that's most influential in my life, which is my father, who, who passed away about five years ago. But, um, you know, he we were doing relatively fine in Jamaica. He was very involved in politics. And um, if you're familiar um, in the early 70s, um, uh, Jamaica won its independence from Great Britain. So, you know, politics was really a, a contact sport and a life and death sport. Um, uh, there was a period of time where my father's life was at risk, and that's when he really ser- got serious about uh, immigrating um, to the U.S. Uh, luckily, he had a cousin um, in the Toledo area, uh, my uncle Stanley, and um, he helped with uh, my dad's work visa and, and the entire process, including um, some uh, co- congressional leaders um, from Ohio hmm. uh, helped uh, get him out of the country. So he actually was here approximately two years before the family, uh, we, were, we as a family were able to come up and join him. But um, we ended up in a uh, lower middle class, all Polish neighborhood. So we were the only black family <laughs> in the neighborhood. Uh, it's, which, which really helped me to learn a lot about American culture. Frankly, uh, racism um, was also a, a hard lesson at that time. Um, and, and, you know, the progression. So 
you know, you come into a new country. Uh, luckily, I was young enough where, you know, uh, my entry was probably a little bit easier than my sister's because, um, uh, you know, being older and, and being in the high, at the high school level already. Um, but, you know, it was it was one of those things that if my parents were not able to do that, I I really have no idea what my life would be like today. I I've consider myself uh, very self-confident and driven and competitive. So I, I, I always think and I tell my kids, you know, if we were still in Jamaica, I'm not sure exactly where I'd be, but I mean, we, we would be somewhere, right? We would have pushed forward. Um, so that's where it kind of began in this country. Um, you know, my junior year in high school, I was active. I was uh, always uh, pretty kind of ambitious. I always sought out people who I thought were doing things better than me, um, smarter than me, um, better athletes than me. I kind of just always wanted to be around people like that and then try to see how I measured up. Um, and then I also worked a lot. My dad, uh, you know, worked in the steel industry and then did a ton of stuff on the side to make ends meet. And I was always, always with him. And I, I will say that my progression to Ohio University was serendipitous. Um, I was involved with the student um, uh, uh, yearbook group and the student journalism group in high school, kind of more because of friendships more than any passion. And uh, the director, one of the teachers, um, and I apologize, I'm missing his name right now, uh, came up to me one day and he gave me um, an advertisement for a national photojournalism competition, but they were focused on minority students. So it was minority students from around the country and then we would all go to Ohio University and we would spend a week. Um, and basically at the end of the week, we would present our portfolios. And they would be judged by people from New York Times, National Geographic, et cetera. And then they pick a winner and the winner got a free tuition scholarship to Ohio University. So I'd like to say that like I, you know, I, I looked at U.S. News and I did all this analysis and I studied and Ohio University was, you know, but but Ohio University found me more than I found uh, it. And I, so I did win the national competition. I got a full ride uh, that made the decision about college. Wow. Easy. Um, I'm not sure, uh, you know, I, I probably would have gone to the University of Toledo. Otherwise, I, I, I didn't really um, know which path I was going to take per se. Uh, but Ohio University is really special to me because of that. Um, I, just one brief story. When my parents drove me down on the way down, I don't know if you know, you, you have to think this is about 1986, uh, driving from Toledo to southeastern Ohio. And there's a there are a lot of you know, once you get south of Columbus, you're, you know, there's there, there are a lot of pretty interesting things and some Confederate flags and all this kind of stuff. And we were going down and I'm like, there's no way I'm going here. <laughs> this is just not going to happen. And the thing that really changed um, uh, is that my parents were on Court Street and this really tall, skinny white guy, uh, older guy comes up to them and he just starts talking and they have this very long conversation. I have no idea who this person is, but my parents really, you know, they were pretty engaged and I thought that was cool. And I kind of noticed it because obviously being kind of strangers in a strange land that that hit me. And it turned out that it was Charlie Ping, the president of the university. And to me, that really, it hit home and it hit home for my parents. And for some reason, I kind of felt like I would be safe there. Um, and so, you know, everything kind of uh, just really transitioned from there. That's amazing. I have to ask, what was your portfolio? I mean, what was the winning uh, portfolio? Yeah, so um, I had, uh, th there was, a, interestingly enough, uh, there was a Jamaican guy. Um, his name was Spider. Um, and he had like an Army Navy surplus uh, shop at the end of Court Street. 
And the, the main picture were, that actually showed up in the paper when they announced my winner were his kids. They were um, a mixed race. Uh, his wife was right. And these kids were probably three and four years old. And I, I went down to their level and they were, they were a little bit nervous. So they were like huddled together. And that was, that was the, that was the shot. And then I also had another shot that made it into the top three of spider himself, who was a very interesting character um, in the store. And I, I kind of got a really neat angle on him. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I will also say that one of my lifetime friends, Mary Yee, um, she's in Columbus right now. And she, uh, she also participated and she came in second and we both went to Ohio university. We've kept in touch ever since, but the number one shot were uh, spiders kids. And, and it's interesting because, uh, he was from Jamaica and that's just by, that's just by happen circumstance. I just happened to see him and start taking pictures. What we did is, um, we were shooting black and white. And uh, they gave us, um, we shot 144 uh, frames a day, every day. And then, you know, we had to log everything that we cataloged. And then they had uh, students and graduate students and everybody help us put together our portfolio. It wasn't just me. They helped us to identify the best images and stuff. And, and it, was a, it was an amazing experience. It's something I never thought I could do, to be honest with you. It wasn't like I was walking around high school with, uh, with a camera and things like that. I just, you know, but that teacher um, really had, had, I mean, that decision that he made to, to give that to Amazing. me encouraged me to go. And then my parents, you know, it wasn't like that was an easy thing to do to just, you know, take me four hours away from home and drop me off. My yeah. Floor too. Yeah. We oftentimes on this podcast or, you know, in any of our lives, when we're talking about it, you hear about these, these inflection points where it's sort of like on the uh, space time continuum of back to the future, like at that moment, had things gone a different way, right. we definitely wouldn't be talking right now. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's a, uh, just a reminder of, um, you know, for all the uh, control and planning that we try to do that uh, a lot of times uh, life just happens. But as you um, had that great first impression with, with uh, President Ping, welcoming uh your parents it sounds like this was a pretty immersive um experience for you to kind of be there and really be engaging uh in the the photography work but in a way that uh, it sounds like was almost a a test run of being a student at ohio u and so you did you find out that week that you won and like on your car ride home was it wow now i'm going to you know i never you know, I'm passing Confederate flags on my way down here, uh, <laughs> and, and now I'm passing them on my way home, saying I'm going to go to college there. Yeah, uh, that's actually very well um, summarized. Uh, yeah, so we found out before we left, so I was able to. Well, I mean, when my parents came to pick me up, they they also the administrators at the university told them, um, and then we had we were in the um, Athens newspaper as well. Um, they had uh, my shot and and um, Mary E, and then another gentleman that took third place. And going home was yeah, it was kind of like. Um, this is it. And, you know, this makes sense. And, and for me, it was one of those things. So I I think I mentioned my sense of um, self-determination. So for me, it was less about Ohio university and more about the fact that my dad didn't have to pay for it. So, so in my mind, I was like, okay, um, I need to make the best of whatever I have, but here I I have, my tuition is going to be free. So, and my, my older sister was at Wittenberg, um, in, uh, Springfield, uh, um, Ohio. So, so that was private school tuition. And my dad never, 
I, I will say this. My dad never said like, you can't do this. You can't do that. We can't afford this. You can't afford that. He just really just pushed and, and he never, you know, the only time my dad said things like that is when I, I, I don't know, you're probably way younger than I am, but you know, uh, parachute pants uh, were, were a big deal at one point, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, those kind of extravagant things, uh, tennis shoes and things like that. That's pretty much the only time my dad would be like, no, most of the time he, he would try to find a way to, to get things done. So I never felt, he never said you can't go to XYZ school, but in my mind, I was like, well, I'd rather just do it myself. And so yeah. this kind of worked out. And so you get to Ohio U, uh, what, when you think back to the college experience, what stands out um, positively, negatively? I mean, what are, what are the key memories? Yeah. So um, one of the most important things for me is that um, I was a C student in high school. I won this national scholarship, which then what they did is they placed me in an honors dorm in Fenzel Hall. So all the other kids that I was around were there for academic reasons. They had academic scholarships and things like that. And that was probably one of the most important steps because in high school, as a C student in a you know a public uh, lower middle class high school, I was the man. I you know nobody ever questioned me or tried to push me towards an A. You know I was I was class president. I was you know playing all kinds of sports, involved in all kinds of clubs. I gave the commencement. Um, I gave one of the commencement talks uh, at commencement. You know so so I never had any push on the other side besides my parents just pounding at me. You're supposed to get better grades because both my sisters were like gifted straight A students. Um, so when I went to college. Uh, to be put in an environment where all the kids were serious about, I mean, they, they played hard, but they were serious about school was one of the most transformational experiences of my life. So, because I didn't really know how to study. I didn't know how to learn. I could get through anything just with being street smart. I could, I could figure anything out. And I got that from my dad. And so, but to, to be in an environment like that, and then my, my, and I'm not embarrassed to say this, my very first quarter, um, we came back from break and everybody was sitting in the mod. So every, we had individual rooms, but then one, uh, one area that we all congregated to watch um, TV and stuff like that and hang out. And we came back and the very first day we were there in the evening and I remember it like yesterday and everybody was sitting around and they were talking about what their grades were, what they got. Um, from the last quarter. And it was like three, six, three, nine, you know, da, 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 da. And it came to me and I didn't lie. And I said, I got a 2.0 and I actually had a 2.064. And those guys were like, what? You're smarter than that. And it, they didn't, it didn't phase them or anything. And then from there, they started helping me really learn what I should have learned in the first 12 years, how to study. Um, Similarly, so I so I, I ended up getting that GPA up into the low threes um, with a lot of hard work by the time I graduated. The other thing too, which is important, Brent, is because I won the photojournalism scholarship, I also was placed into uh, the journalism school, which at the time was ranked like number five in the country. Um, 
Ohio University's journalism school was was unbelievable. Um, you know, only like Missouri and Columbia and a few other schools were were considered better at the time. So that's another thing that that fortunately happened and was serendipitous. So all these things converged. Um, I ended up dropping out of photojournalism and moving into public relations because I felt uh, kind of like I could do more on the business side and the photojournalism side. And I realized that photojournalism, I probably make $13,000 a year and I wasn't going to cut it. Uh, but there was a series of things like that that happened that were on the positive side. I was put into a place with good people. Um, I didn't experience any racism in my particular group. I mean, there were incidences that happened, but they happen everywhere. They happened in Toledo. You know, it's not, they happen here. It's not, it's not anything new. Um, but there were things that happened beyond my control that put me in environments. And then luckily I was raised with enough sensibility to be open to feedback, to be open to take advantage of these opportunities. Cause I could have lied, right? I could have said, well, I got 3.4. They wouldn't have known the difference, right? But I didn't lie. And because I didn't lie, they realized, hey, we can help. We can be a part of Dexter's journey and we like him and we're gonna, we're gonna work on it with them. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. And, and as you went through the pivot from journalism into public relations, um, at some point along the way, you know, you mentioned your dad working in the steel industry, right? N not a, uh, afraid of hard work, but you do need to start thinking about what is my career? You know, what am I going to do? And, and, you know, as a first generation college student myself, yes. without having aunts and uncles and cousins and friends who had all gone off to do all of these things, yes. uh, I never had that sounding board. Um, I never had sort of the, uh, now, the advantage was I was also never pushed to go do something that maybe I didn't really want to do, but it was just very much open-ended. Yes. Um, how did you start to uh, develop a point of view on what the path out of college might look like? Were there faculty members, advisors, just conversations with those friends in the honors dorm? Um, what, what was your first step out of college? Because I know it wasn't right into the advanced world. That's correct. Um, I would say that in college, I didn't know what I didn't know. So for me, professors were um, intimidating. Professors were the people, the men and the women that needed to give me information that I need to memorize, interpret, um, and then perform uh, within the context of how they saw how I should perform academically. So, so one of the big mistakes I made as a first gen uh, college student as well, my sister was working on her PhD so she was ahead of me, um, but uh, you know, I, I just didn't know. So for me, it was observation and experiences. And being a public relations major, um, we would have speakers come in from you know other PR firms or corporations and things like that. Um, and so I was starting to recognize that working in business may be the right way to go. Um, and public relations, the, the vast majority of case studies and things we do are business related. Yeah. Um, so, so for me, it's like, okay, um, this, I like what I'm doing right now. I think I'm good at it. Um, and, and that's a direction that makes sense. One thing I realized is that I, I hadn't taken any business classes. So I stayed an extra year, uh, almost a year at, at OU and just took all business classes and applied to, um, uh, for my MBA. Uh, I got into a number of schools, but similar to the Ohio University experience, I got a call from University of Toledo, um, their admissions director, and she offered me a, a GA ship. So that once again, that's free tuition. 
um, to work on my MBA at University of Toledo. So once again, that to me, that was just an obvious decision. And so I went and got my MBA and finished that up in a little under two years because I had already done so many um, classes at OU. Uh, and then um, if you don't mind, while I was working on my MBA, I also worked um, at a, a small public relations firm called Funk Lukey in Toledo, Ohio. Um, their biggest uh, client was Owens Corning. Uh, long story short, Orange Corning uh, had a had the leadership change and started backing off their um, their portfolio with Funk Lukey. But my job was new business development. So I, I even though they laid off a few people, I stayed on and I was really just uh, beaten, which is kind of translates into being a fundraiser. But you know, uh, beating the trees and trying to figure out where we can get new clients. And there was a gentleman there who was one of the um, principals at Funk Lukey named Jim Ruvalo. And at the same time that he was head of the he was principal in the company, he was also head of the state Democratic Party. And like my teacher in high school, um, I had worked for Jim. He knew what I could produce. And Jim called me in his office one day and sat and gave me a, um, a piece of paper. And the word, the two words on it were Lisa Brown. And he said, and her phone number, and he said, you need to call her. I think you have a lot to offer. And, you know, and he, and he didn't tell me a lot about Lisa Brown. And I didn't really make the connection with the Democratic Party piece. So um, I called Lisa because I, I do what I'm told. I'm a good worker. And Lisa then invited me down to Columbus. We met. And at this point, I don't really even realize what I'm doing, but she's working for the attorney general's um, state uh, reelection campaign, Lee Fisher. And we talk and everything's like that. And she's like, you know, Jim really thinks highly of you, da, 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 da. And then at the end, she says, I've never done this before. I've never met somebody and offered them a job on the spot, but I'd like you to come and work for our campaign. And I'm like, what? Or I don't even know what you're talking about. I didn't know this was a, sorry. I didn't know this was a interview. And so I go back and I'm talking to Jim and he's like, I really think this is the right path for you. And, you know, all these things are going to happen and things like that. And he said, here, what you what is here is what's going to be here five ten years from now for you you're not you know we're we don't even know if the firm's going to be around 10 years from now and he said this is this is i think this is the right place for you so i so i took that job with lisa and then that's how i got into politics um we lost the race uh, so those of you who are ancient like me you'll remember um newt gingrich and the contract with america a lot of down ticket balloting um lee fisher was exceptional but we lost to betty montgomery by less than two points. And um, after that, they asked me to become the press secretary of the Ohio House. And it was the first time in 26 years that the Democrats were in the minority. And then there's a whole story there that'll take up too much time. But that was uh, a year of before I got out, I just I had to get out of that environment. As you can imagine, it was pretty toxic. Wow. So you're I mean, first of all, every time you drive south from Toledo, an unexpected opportunity <laughs> exactly. emerges. So I am saying exactly. a recurring theme <laughs> exactly. here. Um, anytime you want to change, just take a drive. Uh, yeah. But um, you're in the MBA program at this point. What are your classmates thinking? I mean, this is not like, you know, you just did your fifth year or whatever at Ohio U. You do all the business stuff. Now you're doing the MBA not a lot of people pivoting into uh, into politics. What was the perspective among your classmates? Uh, pretty pretty positive. Um, I don't recall any kind of determinant conversations. Everybody saying, "What are you doing?" Um, right. One of the things that really uh, was interesting to well, during my MBA, I loved finance. And then there was a track, a series of classes on industrial marketing. So uh, you know, Toledo being where it's located geographically, you know, there's 
you know, uh, glass capital of the world, automotive industry. So um, they had some really interesting um, classes around industrial marketing and how to market products and, you know, total quality management and stuff like that. So I kind of love that stuff. And I um, was very close with uh, a gentleman who, interestingly enough, was a medical doctor and he decided he didn't like practicing medicine. So he was came back to get his MBA, get his MBA. And then another guy who was from uh, the Emirates um, who was there as well. So we, that was kind of our unit. And um, those guys were going to go off and change the world, right? You know, go back into healthcare management and then go back to the Middle East. And so for me, it, it, it made a lot of sense, but I don't recall any pushback. Um, and they, they probably saw it in, in me a little bit. And, and as I mentioned, my dad was uh, politically active when, we were, when he was in Jamaica. So it probably came with the genes to a degree. Yeah, love it. And so uh, throughout this journey, you have been a tremendous beneficiary of financial aid and scholarship yep. and so forth. Yeah. Did you realize it? Yeah. Um, yes, I, I realized it. And then when I got my first call from the call, the student call center at Ohio University, um, that was my first gift. Um, I pledged $100 um, for payments of $25 uh, uh, for four months. Um, that's all I could afford. My salary, if I had worked an entire year, would have been about $12,500 dollars working on the campaign. Um, so yeah, I, I realized it. Um, I felt privileged uh, to have it. Um, and I, I don't think that there, I, and I feared losing it. I never uh, thought to take it for granted. Wow. And so by way of that call center call, uh, you had at least some exposure to philanthropy, might not have called it that then, um, I wouldn't have. But uh, at what point did you start to realize that this could be a career path? And based on everything you've shared so far, I wouldn't guess the next step in the story would be to move to Seattle and, uh, you know, get involved in the uh, advancement world. That's true. That's true. So, um, and I know I keep telling these stories as if uh, there are things happening to me. I mean, obviously I'm deliberate and I, I do try to analyze things and, and I push boundaries, but, you know, once again, um, I was in the state house and at this point uh, my caucus was just total disarray they had spent 26 years running, you know, state government under Vern Reif. There was a lot of bad stuff going on. It was a dark place. And I was like, I gotta get the heck out of here. So um, Jim Pyatt was, uh, who's now VP for advancement at Elon and Jim was at OU and Jim, um, I was talking to him and we were, I was looking for jobs and I kind of figured I kind of would do anything for a little bit just to get out of the state house. I didn't want to be the press secretary anymore. And, um, Ohio University had a position in the alumni house uh, doing communications um, in the Conacher Alumni Center. And I interviewed and, and got that offer. And for me, I didn't think twice. I didn't even know that these types of careers existed. I, it never crossed my mind that there were these professionals that worked in higher education that had these dynamic, impactful jobs. It just never crossed my mind. I thought it was students and faculty and other, other people who are around, right? Security. Um, so I, I took the job and I remember distinctly, um, I was uh, talking to a close friend and I said, I'm just gonna do this job. They're paying me more than I'm making now. It's OU, I know OU, it's gonna be fun to go back. I'm gonna do this for one year. They're gonna pay me to do 
easy work, in my opinion, compared to the stuff I was doing in the state house and then PR, easy communications work, and I get to travel. And I said, I'm going to do this for a year. And that was 1995. So that, that's how I got into it. And, um, you know, I, I got into it. I realized relatively soon, um, no offense to alumni relations, but I realized that I, I gravitated towards conversations with the fundraisers. Um, just it just that that business part of the, you know, making deals and finding out what donors are really interested. In, how does it map with the institutional priorities like that? The deal making stuff just really resonated with me. So I, I did get bored with the alumni relations stuff pretty quickly, but I worked with fantastic people. Um, George Reed, rest his soul, uh, was was there um, uh, as well. And and uh, Rick Harrison, I mean, it was a good group. And uh, Ralph Amos had, had come in as head of the alumni association. Uh, but I, I wanted to be on the, on the fundraising side. So I asked Leonard Rayleigh, who was a VP at the time, uh, could I do fundraising? And there was a position open in the business school, which I thought I was ready for. Leonard didn't. Um, and then there was an opportunity in the College of Education, which Leonard thought I was ready for. I thought I, 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 I was better. I was way beyond that. Um, but once again, uh, that opportunity was, was amazing. Um, Leonard did give me a chance to move over and become the assistant dean for development in the College of Education. I worked with a first-time dean, James Heap, uh, who was from University of Toronto, never been a dean before. And we were quite a pair uh, because James was about 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, um, I'm, I'm way not 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, <laughs> uh, white guy, you know, I'm black and we were quite a, quite a team. And, um, you know, we spent uh, those first uh, two years together really building the fundraising program in the College of Education. So that's how it started. And it just, it just kept getting more interesting, harder, tougher, and that just motivated me more and more and more. As I said, I'm very competitive. So things that, that, that drive me are, when I look at the leaderboard, like I, don't, I wanna be at, at the top. And so those are the things that really push me and being able to take a program like the College of Education, which had had no fundraising um, for about a year and a half, Heidi Tracy was there before me, um, and be able to build it from scratch with a first time Dean and you know, be able to, to surpass our numbers that first year was a really big um, proof of concept for me that I could do it. Uh, I have interviewed almost a hundred advancement leaders on the Raise podcast. And I think this is the first time anybody has described it as deal making. And I want to double click on that. I love the description, mm -hmm. but uh, when you think about getting started in the sector, working with the Dean, building the College of Education fundraising program. I mean, are there any poignant memories early on in that journey with donors or when yes. it really started to click or you really started to feel like, wow, I'm, I'm making deals here. I got to get creative. I got to pivot. I got to negotiate. It's not just sort of, will you make your gift the way that the, the student caller might have, you know, had their script the first time they reached out to you. Tell me about the deal making aspect and when you first started feeling that. Yeah, I would say that just to tie everything that you're asking into, into one example, um, Dan DeLauder. Um, so Dan DeLauder uh, did receive his uh, degree from the College of Education. He went into banking. Um, he was a cold call, but obviously he would have been close to the top of my list. The vast majority of our alums were teachers. I mean, the, the high earners were superintendents and principals. Um, so Dan was uh, disengaged. Um, I um, 
uh, reached out to him. He did take a meeting with me at the time. He was uh, president of a bank, and I don't remember the town in Ohio, uh, but a rural, a small community bank. But he was also uh, president of the um, state banking association. That was his year. Um, and I went in super scared to meet Dan um, <laughs> because it was just one of those things like, what am I doing? And I and I tried to prepare as best I could. But back then it was like, you know, microfiche and stuff like that it was, you know, and it wasn't like jumping on Google and, and getting all the information. So uh, we have this great conversation. I go in with all this preparation. I'm telling him all the things that the College of Education are doing. I'm telling him about James Heap, da, 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 da. And he said, and I asked him, um, uh, if he would consider, you know, if I would be able to come back and do a follow-up visit with, with James Heap, because I realized that he was at this kind of higher level and it was probably important for him to meet my CEO, our CEO. And Dan DeLauder said, Dexter, um, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Um, I, I would be open to meeting with you again and, and James Heap, but don't waste my time, period. Don't waste my time. And that has stuck with me forever. Um, long story short, we were able to cultivate Dan DeLottery, did a six-figure gift at that time. Dan eventually became um, a regent who was uh, appointed to the board, to the, uh, to the regents uh, for Ohio University, um, fully engaged. I'm, I don't know what he's given by now, but I, I'm assuming it's, it's seven figures. Um, but, but that's where it started. And that was the deal. To me, Dan's, the engagement with Dan, even the closest 100,000 was like negotiating a deal, right? What about this? What are the facts? What's going to change if I make my gift? How many students are going to be impacted? Like, you know, and so he kind of was teaching me to do a business plan for his gift. And it was a small gift, but for me, it was a big gift. And that one is probably the most clear in my mind. I'd raised money for scholarships, um, other things during the course of that year. Um, to put things in perspective, Caltech just completed a $3.4 billion campaign. Our total for that year was about $415,000 for the College of Education. So I want to keep it in perspective. So a hundred grand from Dan was a huge deal, um, but he, he, was, um, he really just helped me think about it in that deal-making way. And you know, good deals are when both partners feel good and strong about the deal and are committed to the deal. Um, I think in our business, there are some things that we do that undermine the, the complexity of what we do. And I think that if you're on the outside looking at who we are as fundraisers, there's a perception, if you're not close to it, that looks like, oh, these rich people just come in and they just throw money at you. You go play golf and you come home with a bag of money. You go to an event. But you know, as well as I do, there's a lot of complex, detailed competitive work. And with the wealth disparity that's going on in our country, we're all going after a very a, a shrinking pool of high net worth individuals who have discretionary income. And within that pool, very few of them are philanthropists. A lot of them are donors, but few of them are real true philanthropists that are eager about using their money to make the world a better place. And so we're in a very competitive environment. And, um, and I think we want to make good deals that are, you know, good deals are good for Caltech. They're good for the donor and they're good for our constituents, our students, our faculty and the outcomes that, you know, that are driven by our mission. All right. I have, I have two follow-ups. One, mm -hmm. when he said, don't waste my time. Yes. What did that mean? What did he mean? How did you interpret that? Was that his way of saying, Make the ask. I mean, put another way, would he have preferred you just made the ask the first visit or 
was he more just almost challenging you to uh, just come to the table with something versus uh, another discovery conversation? What do you think he meant? I think the latter. I, I took it as this was good. Um, you've got you've got my interest, um, but I don't I don't want to be uh, just um, flailing in the wind at OU. You know, and having you know, so you need to bring me something that's well thought out, that's consistent, um, or at least uh, directional from from the things we've been talking about that I've expressed that I care about. So I took it not as make the ask for me now. I think if I had made the ask then, I don't think I would have gotten a hundred thousand. Um, because I, at that point, I hadn't formulated a plan. I, I hadn't formulated a strategy. I didn't have the data. Um, but after I spoke with him, I realized that student financial aid would be an area of interest for him. Um, obviously, everybody in the whole country, even today, should be concerned about the plight of teachers. Um, so, you know, and he really didn't spend any time. Um, he did a, a few, um, if I remember correctly, uh, like, um, what's the word? Ad, um, substitute teacher kind of things, but he went into banking pretty quickly after he graduated because mm -hmm. he really couldn't get his career started in teaching. So, so I didn't take it as ask me now. I took it as here are the, here are the rules of the game, Dexter. I'm willing to go the next step, but you need to be prepared. Your dean needs to be prepared. And, and each engagement with me needs to be uh, thoughtful and, and directional. I don't want to waste time. I don't, I'm not looking to go to parties and that kind of stuff. So that's why right. I took it. Sounds like he was trying to do his own moose management uh, yeah. <laughs> True. in a certain regard. So uh, you talked a lot about good deals just now, what, what a good deal is. Mm -hmm. What about bad deals? And have you had exposure to bad deals, either directly, indirectly, you've heard about, uh, you know, on the, on the circuit? Yes. I mean, what is a bad deal in advancement? Yeah, so I'll, I'll use an example, but I won't name the institution. Um, we did a bad deal once where we had a donor that came in that was interested in ALS research. And this person had been inflicted um, with the disease for over two decades and basically has dedicated his life. He's now passed away, uh, dedicated his life to raising money to do research to finally um, destroy this disease. Uh, he came to our institution uh, with a proposition of a $2 million commitment. And at the time, we weren't really focused in this particular area, but we found a researcher um, in the medical school who said that she would be willing to take this on. Um, with the setup that I just gave you, um, we probably sh should have paused at that point. Here's a guy who's literally his life is dedicated to this journey. And we did not have any depth in this area. The motivation of doing it, being responsive, we think we can get it done. I mean, we, we did it all with the best intentions, but it was a bad deal. And we, hindsight being 2020, we knew it going in. But this person was very committed to the Institute, had a long relationship with that institution and felt like this is the place that he, where he wanted it to go. Um, about a year and a half later, uh, I'd been working for about six months trying to get the stewardship report together. So how did we spend the money? What progress have we made? And I was just getting, you know, blowback and headwind after headwind after headwind from this researcher. And when I finally got high up uh, enough on the ladder where we, we really could uh, bring sunshine on what was going on, the funds were being used uh, for that researcher's primary research area and not so much on the, on the ALS initiative. So I had to go back to the donor, um, which I was um, 
you know, I felt obligated and responsible to do and have a series of discussions, including not only with the donor and his family, but also they had a board. Uh, so we had to, I, I was the tip of the sphere on that to kind of go and explain mm. that we went in with all good intentions, but, you know, we, we really cannot deliver this outcome. And luckily my president was 110% behind me and said, every dime is going to go back. Um, that was a really, really bad deal. It was in my, it's something that I still, I still, I, I, this is overstatement and it's, and it's, 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 um, it's, it's kind of. But, but, you know, he lost a year of progress in his life's journey, right? So uh, I was able then to, through a series of contacts, to find um, that Cold Spring Harbor had a very strong and um, uh, forward-leaning uh, group of researchers who were doing some really novel therapies in this area. And I was able to broker the transfer of the funds from the institution I was at to Cold Spring Harbor. Yep. Um, yep. And that's, so that was a bad deal where I think everybody went in with good intentions, but we, sh if, if you, if you saw where we were and you did an analysis as to where we were, we didn't have the depth, we didn't have the capability and we went for it anywhere anyway. And I think that was a huge mistake. Because ultimately this philanthropist had a very clear uh, objective, right? Solving right. a problem, an impact area. Yes. And the question, I mean, what I'm hearing you say is, your institution was not the best conduit to solve that problem. On the flip side, you're feeling the pressure of, you know, one, they want to make the donation. So yeah. let's not say no. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it sounds like in hindsight, well, in hindsight, you know, if you could go back and coach yourself at that moment, mm -hmm. I mean, a couple of options. One, you could have said, look, honestly, there are gonna be better conduits to solve this problem. We love your support. Let's find other things to work on down the road, mm -hmm. but now isn't the right time. I don't know how often fundraisers can, can, can really say, exactly. please don't give us that money right now. The alternative would have been, this is not the right, like we cannot solve this problem here, but maybe there are tangential things. There are other areas of opportunity, but we don't wanna mislead you into believing that we can solve this problem. I mean, what would you tell yourself to do if you could replay that? Yeah. Uh, we, the, when the faculty member volunteered, I think we didn't measure that carefully enough, right? That, that, so with the pressure of fundraising and the pressure to close the gift, that person's willingness helped to move us past the line, right? So it, it justified the move forward because it wasn't that we were taking it and we didn't have anybody who was willing to, to make an engagement. So I would tell myself at that point, I needed to pause and really interrogate the probability of that happening. I knew what this person was doing and she was a significant leader in the area of research she was in. So the pivot, um, knowing what I know now, would would have been highly unusual and frankly two million dollars would not have been enough for her to yeah. pivot that far so yeah. so i think it, interrogating it deeper um but but there was pressure not not like from my boss saying you got to close this gift it wasn't that kind of situation it's, it's basically we have a two million dollar donor wants to make a gift how are we going to make it work right so so the pressure wasn't like you know, people bullying us into accepting it. It was just, we thought we, I thought I put together the deal. Yep. I will say that um, 
even though it was a difficult path to walk, uh, we made the connection with Cold Spring Harbor. That donor felt so good about the relationship. He did come back to um, the institution I was at before I left and made another commitment, um, more in line with things that we're very, very, um, uh, very strong at uh, because he felt we did the right thing. And he, you know, the family was pretty upset, but he kind of felt that, hey, you guys, you tried, you did the right thing. The money's now going into, because he was, he didn't know about the two researchers at Cold Spring Harbor. So that was like, whoa, you know, and Cold Spring Harbor was, uh, um, Charlie Prizzy was really great to work with me. And we had, you know, a couple of meetings. And so, so, so in the long run, like they felt that they went further ahead um, in the process towards fighting ALS because they, they were, they got access mm-hmm. to guys and moved ahead, but the journey was not easy. Wow. I love that. Thank you for your candor and for sharing. Um, uh, the good deals and the uh, the challenging deals. Now, if you're listening, you're thinking uh, we're still in Ohio, and that that's sort of the extent of uh, you know of Dexter's professional career. Not the case. Uh, you have done time at the University of Washington, at UC Berkeley, uh, law school, ticketing, athletics, WPI in Worcester, Stony Brook, and now at Caltech, and. Um, we don't have a lot of time left, yes. but as you think about either, uh, I mean, you have, you have raised money in the Midwest or, or at institutions based in the Midwest, mm-hmm. the Pacific Northwest, the Bay Area, uh, and then Massachusetts. I mean, very different environments, which, uh, you know, a lot of people have moved around to different roles in this sector, but I think very few have had the geographic uh, sort of reach that, that you've had. Have you noticed any you know, cultural differences, and, and it could be somewhat distinct to what school or unit or, you know, program you're fundraising for, but any sort of broad brush observations as you've done this work sort of throughout the country in different regions? Yeah, um, so so these are generalizations. Um, the Northeast is, is a little tougher um, and a little bit more predictable and stayed uh, to a degree, uh, and I think that it makes sense if you just Think about the actual history and and how long they've been at it versus being in a place like UW. Um, so I would say uh, the work there um, was highly rewarding. Just being at Worcester Polytechnic and Stony Brook were amazing. I love both of those institutions, and um, you know, and we were building both of those programs. Uh, this is the first program I inherited from from Brian Lee, where I'm I'm optimizing. So my, my specialization has been going in and building programs and then leaving them sustainable as I move on. Um, so, so the Northeast is, I, I think a little tougher. There's a, there's a, there's a little bit more edge, I think, to closing deals there. When I was at Seattle, it was a Renaissance moment. I mean, there were millionaires coming out of Microsoft every day, uh, administrative assistants, whatever. And they were coming to UW saying, I want to do something, you know, uh, what are your ideas? It was, they were young, they were dynamic. Um, and it was just fun. Um, the law school was so much fun and I worked for, uh, Roland Hjorth and, um, we enjoyed, uh, all the work we did, uh, built a new law school building. And so, so that was just really refreshing. Um, Berkeley, Berkeley was, uh, interesting and that, that's a whole nother conversation working in athletics. Um, but you know, it was very transactional, my work in athletics, uh, Berkeley overall, I know you had Julie on, um, you know, it was a pretty amazing place, but, but the athletics fundraising was something I was really uh, 
I, I think it really helped me uh, hone my skills um, in a very, very uh, pronounced way working in an environment like that where it was so transactional. Why? Why um, do you feel that way? Because, uh, so first of all, the entire culture was about excellence, working with athletes. Um, everybody I worked with, you know, I worked for uh, Steve Gladstone. He had like 14 national championships as a crew coach, um, you know, Olympians. So the whole environment was like excellence, pushing the boundaries, first in, last out, sleep in your office. Like that, that's just oxygen. Like when I worked in politics, that's the first part. The second part was the transactional part that I didn't like as much. So how much do I need to give to get seating priority? How much do I need to give to get access to the coach? How much, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff. And it, it's definitely the, it's the menu. Like you don't yeah. see a menu in advance yep. very often, except yep. for sure in the athletics realm. Absolutely. And, you know, and, it, and it's all, it's, um, it, it was just a really interesting space to see people devote their lives to intercollegiate athletics. And frankly, I'll make a unpopular comment. Uh, the kids are being used. Um, no question, not just there, but all these big time programs. I don't care what I, I love the fact that these new laws and um, uh, ability of athletes to own their own image and to monetize their abilities, because we have we have leveraged uh, their talents uh, to the benefit of everybody but those kids um, for for a generation. And well, so that was I, go ahead. I'm. No, I'm glad you brought this up. We haven't talked about it too much. You're, you're referring to the name and image likeness, uh, uh, legal, uh, you know, adjustment. And I have been thinking about that. I've actually got a cousin who runs cross country at Florida Gulf Coast University right now. And so there's a lot of buzz with all of his teammates and, uh, and, and I'm involved with the Brown University football program as well. But I feel like there has to be a way to harness that change for fundraising like we need to figure out a way like all these brands are now going after the you know the, the cal football players to be their brand ambassadors and their random products on instagram right what is the advancement opportunity to sort of hey like we will pay you to be our brand ambassador our influencer to help you know share the importance of philanthropy. You're all scholarship athletes. Like who right. better to, you know, speak to that. And so I, I feel like there's something there, but I don't know that anybody has acted on it yet. Yeah. I think that's a very smart um, positioning. I hadn't thought about it. Um, I will tell you at the time I was in athletics, the students felt that they had given um, blood, sweat, tears. So we did not have a lot of big gifts, from very, very successful athletes. They felt like, Hey, I love Cal, but you know, I, I don't think Aaron Rodgers is giving back anything significant to, to Berkeley or Marshawn or anybody else. I mean, so I think that they felt like they they gave while they were there and, and your experience, too, on the field at the school. Um, so so but there may be a way of, of monetizing it. Yeah, I will say this, Brent, I think that the things that have happened, I hope, are forcing higher education to rethink the student athlete experience. The way to counterbalance it in my mind is to provide all of our students the resources and the support they need. And if Dexter breaks his leg on the football field, he still should be entitled to finish up yeah. and have financial aid uh, to complete his work at, at whatever school he's at. I think I'm hoping that there's going to be pressure backwards now on the institution to say, okay, Dexter can go and monetize his image, but Ideally, I'd like him to concentrate on his athletics and his academics and not so much be an independent contractor while he's at school. Right. 
So there may be some pressure to push back, but I hadn't thought about how to, how to really um, leverage it. Yeah. Maybe the uh, athlete meets student caller sort of digital uh, evolution here. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we've got a little bit of time left here. Tell me about the journey to Caltech. Yeah. I know you've been in the midst of uh, obviously a, an exciting momentous campaign um, with many curveballs over the last couple of years, but, um, you know, what are you excited about, proud of as you sit here today in November of 2021? What are you looking forward to in 22 and beyond? Yeah, so, so really quickly, um, Caltech is an amazing place. Uh, so when I left Stony Brook, I did not want another collegiate experience. I'd already had all that there was to have private school, big school, football, you know, the whole thing. And I was thinking about actually leaving higher ed until um, Tom Rosenbaum and I had a conversation about Caltech, which is encouraged by um, a Jack Gorman and as Isaac Miller. So uh, my boss, Sam Stanley, was leaving to go to Michigan State. Um, I couldn't convince my wife uh, to think about Lansing. So she's from uh, Washington and, and Kodiak, Alaska. And so um, Caltech is just amazing. And I remember I told you, uh, I'm, I'm not a great student. So, yeah. so to be in an environment like this, I, it's just, it's motivating. It's actually compelling because you. It's, it's the, uh, like the Berkeley athletics meets yes. academic sort yes. of excellence, right? Yes. Horsepower. Yeah. yeah, no, well put. It's, it's insane. And to sit here and to, to be with faculty members who are very accessible, um, they're approachable. And then to be like, you're working on what? And you know, how can that yeah, you, you wrote Cal, Caltech literally is contributing to the benefit of humanity, the environment, and society. That's like, true. No, no big deal. I mean, yeah. that's pretty, no. uh, pretty compelling. Literally. And here's the thing, Brian. I've been in a lot of schools and we talk about excellence and blah, 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 blah. I literally, um, Caltech can prove it, right? So, as small as Caltech is, if you really look at the history and the impact of this institution, the things that have been discovered, the information that's been shared globally, they literally have a track record and a series of checks, you know, notches in their in their headboards uh, that they do contribute and make that difference. And we're actually on the cusp right now um, in the quantum revolution that makes some serious contributions, single cell biology. It's a small group of people that their entire lives are dedicated uh, to the pursuit of new knowledge. And it, it's, it's really interesting. I will say, I still feel like I don't know Caltech. I obviously spent the last 18 months, uh, you know, in, on Zoom. Um, so I, I feel energized. You asked me about, you know, going forward, I feel really energized. Um, I'm glad the last campaign's over because I, there, there's, you, you know, you know, there's structures of a campaign that do limit uh, some of your creativity and some of the boundaries that you get to push. So now the breakthrough is done. And I feel like I'm now putting my imprint on Caltech advancement and what, what I think we need to do to move forward. Um, we're going to be a little bit more focused on the human experience uh, to balance it with the scientific and engineering experience. Um, and then I'm also, you, you'd asked earlier about, you know, hiring and stuff. We're, we're, yeah. renewing. we're in the process of uh, renewing our entire staff. I mean, People are there. There's no, so at the end of the campaign, you always have people's equity is high. Uh, their their stocks are high, so they're able to move on. We've seen that, but then compounded now with this like post pandemic great resignation or whatever is going on, and people leaving the workforce and becoming on, um, uh, entrepreneurs and and consultants and stuff. We are seeing a huge churn. Um, mm -hmm. I celebrate each opportunity um, when people are leaving. I want them to leave Caltech 
knowing that we value what they contributed when they were here and we're hundred percent behind them as they move on. And if we can maintain a culture, a positive culture like that, I think we're going to bring in people that are also going to be really excited that they did get here. So we don't look at it as doom and gloom and, oh my God, all these people are leaving. It's the nature yeah. of, it's a, it's one yeah. of the toughest parts of our jobs, but I feel like we're bringing in some really, really strong um, new colleagues to work with, but we are hiring. We're, we're hiring in all facets of the, of the business right now. Well, I would encourage anybody listening, uh, you know, nice climate, great leader, uh, and world uh, changing uh, academic and, and, and research uh, outcomes for sure. And I, uh, I, I just want to thank you, Dexter, for coming on today, for sharing your perspective. We spent a lot of time uh, in the early yeah. part of your career. You probably spend a lot of time talking about today and, you know, what you're doing today. So maybe this was a, uh, you know, a worthwhile sort of uh, pivot um, from what we might have planned on talking about. But I, I found it fascinating and to hear kind of your your personal journey, your family's journey, the direct impact that education and specific mentors at specific moments have had in your life. It's just such a good reminder of uh, why we're all doing um, what we're doing and, and the opportunity in this sector. If people want to get in touch with you or reach out, um, I know you're active on LinkedIn. Is that the best way or... Yeah, LinkedIn is great. And um, my email is simple. It's just uh, DexterB at Caltech.edu. Um, sorry, uh, D Bailey. Sorry, D Bailey at Caltech.edu. Yeah. DexterB is a different one. Yeah, but, All right. yeah, LinkedIn is good, LinkedIn. And I really appreciate the opportunity, Brian. This, uh, you made me, um, you, you pushed my um, my boundaries a little bit where I just had, hadn't gone back that far in a while to your point. Um, but I have been fortunate. Um, I don't, uh, uh, you know, I, I've worked hard to get where I am. Um, I'm not going to sugarcoat that. Uh, but I also had good people around me. And I think, you know, for all of us, it is important to surround yourself with good people. Um, and it's and it's important to live your life the right way. And, and I do think that those are two fundamentals that that are drivers for success. I think we can all take that away. Uh, and I, uh, really appreciate the perspective and Dexter, I hope to see you in Florida. Yeah, I'll be there uh, <laughs> at, at AGB. Uh, but until then, thank you so much. And with that, we will close today's episode uh, with Dexter Bailey, Vice President for Advancement and Alumni Relations at Caltech. Thanks, Dex Dexter. Take care. Great. Thank you. Take care, Brian.